This morning, as Joe has already said, we start a new series entitled Daring Faith, and we'll be spending the next few months here looking through the Gospel of John, beginning today and working our way through Easter Sunday on down past uh, toward the end of, of April. We'll just be spending the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, Lord willing, uh, reflecting on this, this powerful word. Maybe you're familiar with the game Truth or Dare. Uh, it's, it's kind of a silly little game, really. Um, it pits truth-telling against some sort of uh, ridiculous dare that you have to do, depending on uh, what kind of friends you have. Uh, but it's, it's that sort of game where you've got, okay, you either have to tell the truth about something or you have to, to step out and, and uh, accomplish this dare. Well, I'll bring that up today because I think that's, that's a good uh, choice of, of terms to help us think about the Gospel of John. Not truth or dare, but truth and dare. <laughs> because in John's Gospel, what we find is John, more than any other Gospel writer, really working and laboring even to point us to the truth and to help us understand that Jesus is someone who doesn't just teach the truth. It's not that his, his, his teaching or, or um, the, the words that he, he uses are, are true, although they are, but in John's gospel, more than any other, he points us to Jesus as ultimate truth, as truth embodied, as the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, we have all of this in John's gospel. Over the next few weeks, we'll spend some time looking at and reflecting on the truth that that John is pointing us toward, truth being Jesus. But it's not just about learning all of this about Jesus and learning the truth about Jesus. Uh, John writes with a, a purpose to also get us to, to step out in faith. There's a daring element that comes once we've come face to face with the truth, then, then we're called to respond. There is a, a, a daring component of faith that we're called to embody here. And that's the ultimate purpose for which John writes. So today, what I'd like for us to do as we begin this study of John's gospel, I'd like for us to begin in a rather unexpected place. Most of the time in church, you hear, okay, we're going to be studying this, this book of the Bible. So you expect, right, we're going to open up to the first chapter and we're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to work our way forward. Well, that would be a great way to begin, but that's not how we're starting today. Instead, today, I would like for us to begin with the end in mind. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Today we're going to begin not with John chapter 1, but we're going to begin in John chapter 20. And this is the, toward the end of what John writes in his gospel. But we look at the end because the ending really helps color the way we read the entire document. We're going to be looking here at John chapter 20 and just two verses today. We'll reference a few others, but primarily we'll be operating out of this place here in John chapter 20. Starting in verse 30, this is what God's word says to us. That Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, here we go, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's it. That's where we begin this study of John's gospel, this study of daring faith. We're going to begin right there with those two verses. And the reason being is because this is John's purpose. He writes with this clearly stated purpose, and that purpose is belief. Now, it, it's probably fair for us to say 
that every other gospel writer has that same purpose. They write with that same uh, objective in mind, but none of the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them state it quite so explicitly. John says right here that the reason he has written all of this, the reason he has recorded everything that is contained here in this, in this gospel writing, he does so so that we might believe. So we could say that uh, over the course of, of his ministry, all these signs, all these things that Jesus has done, John records them. He writes, so that non-believers, those who have not yet made a, a confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, he writes with, with that audience in mind, and he lays out the, the compelling case for who Jesus is, but he hopes that, that if we find ourselves in that camp, if we've not yet made that profession of faith, John is hoping that what we hear, what we read, what we encounter will prompt that sort of response out of us. So there's, so there's that. But also, as we'll read through John's gospel, I'm convinced that there are many of us who have already made that profession of faith, and yet the word that we find here in John is going to bless us and call us to a deeper level of faith. So we could say that John writes to provoke faith, to invite faith from those who have not yet come to a point of faith, but also for those who have already come to that point of faith, for those who are believing presently, to encourage them to continue believing and that's the objective, and that is the purpose for which John writes. And as he says here, he hopes to connect us to the source of life, and that, of course, is Jesus. So today, right up front here, let's just, we're, we're just going to get, get a little practical here and talk about, you know, where you might be in your faith. I don't know where you are today. I, I, don't, I don't know where you specifically, individually, where you are in your spiritual life today. Uh, but I'm, I'm convinced of this. No matter where you might be, there is a word from John for you. There is a word, and as we'll talk about next week, word, uh, capital W, <laughs> there is a word in John for each one of us, no matter where we might find ourselves. So today, in, in, a, in a group this size, there might be some of us here who, again, have never made that confession of faith. You, might not, uh, you might, might not have ever come to that point of believing in Jesus Christ as Lord. If so, I just want you to know this right up front. You will find in John chapter 1, for instance, you will find Jesus, and he'll be interacting with a group of people who, like you, have not yet come to a place where they have accepted who Jesus is. They don't even really know yet who Jesus is. It's early in his ministry. It's early in John's writing. But right there in John chapter 1, you're going to hear this word from Jesus. He's going to say, come and see. That's it. It's just a simple invitation to come and see what Jesus is all about. So he'll say to those individuals and to those of us here today who fall into that category, he's going to say, hey, look, hey, just come and, and spend some time with me. Walk with me. Watch and observe and just take it in. Just, just come and see for yourself. There's no real push there. It's just a simple invitation to come and see. And so if you find yourself like those earliest followers, those who were still trying to figure out who Jesus was early in John's gospel, you'll hear that word. Just come and see. 
Maybe you're, you're in a different place. Again, I imagine in a room like this, there are many of us who we've put a lot of miles between the moment we first came to faith and the moment we find ourselves in today. Maybe you've been following Jesus for so long, you can't even hardly remember what it was like to not know the Lord. What a blessing, right? But just like any relationship, your relationship with the Lord may have had some highs and some lows. There may have been moments where you felt particularly close to the Lord, and there may be some times where where you just didn't, frankly. And so if you find yourself in one of those spots, in one of those situations where, you know, there's just a lot of water under the bridge... (laughs) between the Lord and and me. I want you to know this. In John's gospel, there's a word there for you as well. Because toward the end of John's gospel, we come across this this story that, that he records that's unique to John. This encounter where Jesus and Simon Peter have to kind of mend fences. Where Simon Peter has denied that he even knows the man. Only to see Jesus crucified, buried, and then glory of all raised again. In that moment where so much must be pressing in on Simon Peter, you'll find this word where Jesus comes to him and he calls him with the same words that he issued all those years before. And so if you, like Simon Peter, are in one of those low places where there's been a lot of ebbs and flows and water under the bridge between you and your relationship with the Lord, then you'll hear, just like Simon Peter did, the same words, the same consistent call that Jesus issued to you all those years ago. He just says, follow me. Whatever it is that's between us, Simon, we can work through it. And the Lord says the same thing to us. Just follow me. Just keep following So again, wherever we might find ourselves this morning and in the weeks and months to come, I am convinced that there is a word from John that we need to hear. And that word will be calling us to a place of greater belief. Uh, We need to spend a little bit of time this morning kind of uh, parsing this out. When we talk about belief today... What we tend to do is we tend to think of belief in, in intellectual terms, don't we? We think, okay, here's, here's what I believe, and by that I mean this is what I, I mentally assent to. I believe this because cognitively I, I, I know it to be true, or at least based on the data, I, I believe this to be true. So the, this week, so tonight, there's this uh, little game called the Super Bowl, and uh, all week long, all the, the talking heads have been... Uh, giving their opinions about who's going to win, their beliefs, really. And so you've got all these, you know, keys to the game. Here's what, here's what the Atlanta Falcons have to do in order to beat the New England Patriots. And, and these guys, they talk about it as if they know what's going to happen, as if they have any clue what the real keys to the game are. We don't, nobody knows that. They're just kind of making that up. But they're, they're giving their opinion. They're giving their belief about what's going to happen tonight. ESPN had an article this week where one of their columnists, John Clayton, wrote about uh, Tom Brady as the greatest quarterback of all time. And he compared Brady to Joe Montana and to Brett Favre and to Peyton Manning. Those were kind of the, that's the Mount Rushmore of quarterbacks for this particular columnist. And so what he did to help support that opinion, to help support that belief, he appealed to statistics. He looked at regular season wins and losses, touchdown passes, Super Bowl uh, performance, and and most of all, 
if you follow the NFL, most of all, it's Super Bowl rings, okay? And that's what determines whether or not you are great. And so it's as if the, the article writer was saying, okay, here's my belief that Tom Brady is the greatest of all time. If he wins tonight, he might put the argument to bed, right? And here are the, here's the, here's the data. Here's the subjective claim. This is what I believe, but here's my intellectual reasoning, right? We do that sort of thing all the time. At a much more important level, you'll remember last year, our shepherds shared with us that they've been working through developing a document that, that basically laid out our core beliefs as a church. Now, the, the belief statements, a lot of that was, was our own language. It was just our way of kind of getting our arms around some of the key uh, doctrinal statements in the New Testament. You know, so we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, we believe... Uh, and the church as the body of Christ, you know, those sorts of things. And you could read through and you could mentally assent to those claims. But what I loved about it is that each one of those statements had a footnote. And if you read through that document, you look at it, you look at the footnote, and you go down, and at the footnote level, there were all of these scripture references. It's as if we were saying, okay, here are the things we believe to be true based on what God's Word says, and, and here the objective source material, if you want to go and read through that and track that down yourself. Again, here's a belief, but it is supported by this data, by this intellectual enterprise. So I think we would agree all of that is well and good. In fact, I would argue that that is what it looks like for us to love the Lord our God with our whole minds. I think the Lord expects that from us. But I would want to add an important piece to that discussion. Because again, it is easy for us to talk about belief at the level of mental assent or, or as if it's just an intellectual enterprise. And really, when you, when you get down to it in the New Testament, belief is not just mental. It's not just this abstract kind of mental assent to a set of principles. But, but belief in Scripture, belief is active. It has movement. Uh, we might put it a, a different way. Belief is, uh, is not something you have so much as it's something that you, that you do. And this is really important for us as we read through John's gospel. So some English words uh, have both a, a noun and a verb form that are the same. We speak this way all the time. We'll say things like, um, you know, I dreamed a dream or, or I they danced the dance, or I ironed with an iron, you know, all, all those, those kinds of things, right? Uh, but not all English words have that same noun and verb form. And faith, of course, is one of those. When we talk about faith in English, that is a, a noun. But what is the verb form of faith? Well, you don't say that you faith something. It's just not typically good English, right? In English, when t instead, it's translated most often, I believe in so-and-so, Okay. Uh, the reason this is important, though, is that in Greek, the language that John's gospel is written in, the noun and verb for uh, form of faith are essentially, essentially the same. So to believe in something is quite literally to faith in it. To believe that something is true is to faith in it, and to believe in a person in particular, to believe in Jesus, is to faith in him. Now, John doesn't use the, uh, the noun form for faith anywhere in his gospel. But you know what he does? 
is he uses that verb form, and that verb form is, is everywhere. So the reason all of that grammar talk is, uh, is important is to get to this point. In John's gospel, faith is a verb. In John's gospel, to have faith in Jesus Christ is to engage in something that is far deeper than just an intellectual enterprise. It's more than just checking the box and saying, yeah, in my head, I know that he's the son of God. It is, it is way more significant than that. As an active verb in John's gospel, faith is a state of being. Again, it is movement. If you want to put it this way, in John's gospel, faith is a word that sweats. You know what I mean by that? It's a word. It's got a little movement to it, okay? So we're getting out of the, the library, we're getting out of our heads, and we're getting out here in the real world, in the engagement with, with real life, because again, faith is something that you don't just have, it's something that you do. And I know I'm being a bit repetitive here as we talk about this, but it's because the point is just an important one. As you read through John's gospel, the question isn't so much, do you believe X is true? But at a much, much deeper level and a much more important level, the question is, will you faith in Jesus? Will you give your life to Jesus and live this daring response that following Jesus warrants? That's the real crucial question as we read through John. Maybe another way of of helping me to say what I want to say this morning is this. I would suggest to you this morning that as we think about faith, and in particular, think about faithing in Jesus, believing in Jesus, that we begin to think of it in these terms, that, that to, to have faith is to have trusting obedience. That to have faith in Jesus, to, to believe in Jesus, is to give yourself in relationship, a relationship of obedient trust because Jesus Christ is Lord. Trusting obedience, those are words that that have a little sweat to them. Those are words that have movement. They imply, again, a movement beyond just the mental enterprise of checking the box and saying, yes, I agree that this is true intellectually. But instead, it gets me out here where I, like those original disciples, I'm following in the footsteps of the Master. And the more that I'm drawn into proximity to Him, the more my character begins to change the more I begin to understand his call for my life. And the less control I hang on to over those areas and the more control I continue to cede over to him. That's what it means to be a disciple. I would, I would contend that's what it means to be a Christian. To give yourself over so completely to Jesus that you walk in trusting obedience with him because he is the Lord. So as we journey through John together, as we journey through this study over the next few, few weeks and months, we're going to come face to face with, with truth. Again, as I said, John is more interested in that concept almost than any other gospel writer. And that's important because, because belief is always rooted in a concept of truth. We believe in that which we assume to be true, right? So again, we can go back to that ESPN article. John Clayton assumes that Tom Brady is the greatest. He makes this subjective claim, but he trots out the objective data to try and, and validate that claim. 
And that has everything to do with the way that we read John's gospel because John points to Jesus not just as someone who speaks true words, but as one who embodies truth itself. Only in John's gospel do we get this line, John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, except through me. Jesus is making a statement there about the nature of not just who he is, but truth in general. You see, the difference between the argument that we're going to hear from John and the argument that we hear from ESPN about who the greatest quarterback is, the difference there is this. This guy is over here appealing to all sorts of data to validate his truth claim. In John's gospel, the truth claim is the man himself. John isn't appealing to Jesus being who he claimed to be because we have all of this truth about him. No, no. It is the truth of Jesus himself that is the greatest data point. The man claims to be the embodiment of truth. Truth in the flesh. So again, we're getting away from abstract concepts of faith and truth and we're getting down into the nitty-gritty of what you really believe, what you really, who you really trust in, and how you truly live your life. Uh, same thing is underscored in this encounter between uh, Pilate and Jesus. And again, this particular exchange, only in John. So you have uh, John 18. You have Jesus there, and he's, he's on trial, and And he makes this statement in the upper left-hand corner. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Well, of course they do, right? Because we just heard John 14, he is is the embodiment of truth. He is truth personified. Uh, We live in trusting obedience to Jesus because Jesus is the truth. And so Jesus makes this, this claim here that he is truth in the flesh. But Pilate misses the point. He misses the point because he scoffs. And the very next line, Pilate down at the bottom says... What is truth anyway? Pilate's quickly moving toward trying to wipe his hands, absolve himself of this little problem. He doesn't want to have a conversation about truth. He wants to get on with the rest of his day. Where Pilate misses the point there, certainly as it pertains to truth, is that truth is not an abstract. The truth is not a what. But in John's gospel, truth emerges as something deeply personal. It's a who, and that who is, of course, Jesus. So John would have us faith in Jesus because he is truth. And that's why in John's gospel you see Jesus employing an altogether different teaching style than you find in the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, lots of parables. You could say that's that's, uh, his favorite way of speaking. And that would be true if it weren't for John's gospel, because you don't really get any of those there in John's gospel. Instead, what you get in John's gospel, you get a, you get a lot of metaphor. Jesus, uh, John, John shows us the teaching style of Jesus that's a little different than what the other guys are doing. So in John's gospel, you have these metaphors where Jesus will, will show up and say, uh, you know, I am the bread of life. In, in John's gospel, rather than trotting out little parables for for people to try and interpret and figure out what Jesus does there is he himself 
is the living parable. He presents himself and he says things like, again, I am living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. And so when we read John's gospel, you're going to walk away from that and you're not going to be asking the questions that we might if we read Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We will walk away from those teachings sometimes. We think, okay, what was the meaning of that parable? What exactly did that mean? But John poses an altogether different question because when we walk away from the teaching of Jesus in John, we don't say, what did that mean? But we find ourselves asking, who is that guy anyway? And it is that question, the who is Jesus question, that has more bearing on our state of being and the things that we do than any other question that we'll be asking over the course of our lives. So as we wrap up here, as we journey through John's gospel together, we're going to encounter truth, capital T, truth in the person of Jesus. And with that encounter with truth, there will come a dare. So every week, every week, we want to take what we hear and try and apply it in some sort of way to our, our everyday lives. And, and that will, will function again as not truth or dare, but both truth and dare. So um, so each week, we'll, we'll try and find a way for us to do something with regard to our faith, rather than just congregating and sitting here for 25 minutes, letting me talk, you sit and listen. Um, what bearing does that have on your life most of the times anyway? Instead, I want the truth of God's Word to challenge us to really dare to do something each week. So this week, we're going to start really simple. <laughs> the dare is this. Would you dare to read through the Gospel of John this week? I say that's simple. Maybe a better way to say it is, would you dare to make the time to read the Gospel of John this week? Uh, based on the average reading speed uh, of Americans, you know, words per minute and all that sort of thing, and the number of, of words that you find there in John's gospel. They estimate it will take the average American 63 minutes to read the gospel of John cover to cover. I'm going to assume that you're above average, so we're just going to shave that off and call it an even hour, okay? So 60 minutes. Would we make time to encounter Jesus in the gospel of John this week? Uh, based on the data that Facebook released in the first quarter of 2016, globally, Facebook uh, users spend an estimated 50-plus minutes a day across Facebook's mobile platforms. It has nothing to do with how much time people waste at work on their desktop, all right? This is just mobile platforms, but... Over 50 minutes a day globally that people spend on their phones on Facebook or Instagram or Messenger, okay? And that's an average. So again, my question for you is, um, would you make the time to encounter Jesus in the Gospel of John this week? And, and here's the big question that I want to keep in front of you as we make our way through this study of John's gospel. Uh, and that question is, is this. What are you doing by faith? It's an altogether different question from what do you believe to be true. 
But what are you doing by faith? What are you and I doing because of our faith in Jesus? Um, I hope that as we study through this, that our base of knowledge continues to grow, that we continue to learn about who Jesus is, that, that the Word of God continues to shape our minds. Again, that's part of what loving the Lord your God with all your mind looks like, but, um, but at a deeper level, the formation questions, who, who are we becoming because of our faith? What are we, what are we doing? What does trusting obedience look like in your life and in mine? And I'm taking my medicine on this too, just so you know. Um, This is a question I've been asking myself a lot as I uh, prepare for this series. And to be honest with you, I don't like the answers I come up with. Uh, This probably says more about me than anything, so if you'll just humor me, I've kind of reached a point in my life where I can do a lot of the things that I do, and I'm ashamed to say it doesn't really take a whole lot of faith anymore. Things that I do over the course of a given day, things that I do over the course of a given week, I can do those, typically, and not give one consideration to how my faith might be prompting me to do things a little differently, to reach out in some areas where maybe I'm not comfortable. So the question I intend to keep asking you, and (laughs) even if nobody's listening but me, it's good for me to be asking, what are we doing by faith? I think that's the question that the Word confronts us with in John's Gospel. So let's do more than simply believe in terms of providing mental assent, intellectual agreement. Let's instead dare the kind of faith that we find from those We're spending time with Jesus. What are we doing by faith? Today we close by asking you that question. Maybe today for the first time your faith is daring you to to step out and to to do something you've never done, and that's to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe that's the embryonic early moments of faith for you. I can't think of anything we as a church family would want to celebrate more than that. And if we can share in that joy with you, we would love to do that. As you stand before this group of men and women, but just as importantly, that great cloud of witnesses beyond and confess the lordship of Jesus. It is pretty daring, but if that needs to happen today, we would love to share in your joy. Maybe there's some other things that are on your hearts. You'll see your shepherds here at the front of the room and in the back, and you know how this goes, but they are there just to talk and to pray and to cry with you, to just be present. If there's some things you need to share with them during this time of response, you can do that as well. Let's stand and sing our song together.